This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, how much do you know about black swan investing? Well, I know what a black swan is. Uh, it's a term for some kind of a risk that, that you didn't really plan for, which they always seem to be ones you didn't plan for. I think if you had asked people three or four years ago, uh, you know, what the big risk was. I don't know if inflation would have been one of those uh, on the top five, even 10. In fact, we had um, Nick Majuli on, remember? And he said he actually wrote his whole book, um, Just Keep Buying. And he got a lot of people saying, yeah, but you didn't include anything on inflation. And that's how he was saying, I. that's how big of a black swan kind of risk that was and that he didn't even sort of write about it in that book. And now it's all anybody can think about. And so, that's how I interpret a black swan um, event. And I think we had it because that inflation, what it did was it forced the Fed to do a 180 and stop being accommodative. And now it's antagonistic towards the markets. And now the 60 and the 40 are both going down. So it's a mess. A mess. And and yet black swan strategies have been known to, to pay off. And what's interesting was we did this story in the pages of Bloomberg Businessweek which, as you know, I'm the editor of, called Black Swan Hedge Funds Are Growing Business in Scary Times. That really caught my attention. We learned also in the process of doing that, there there's ETF strategies out there that are touching this space. And that made me want to do this. Uh, and we're going to have two guests. One is Denitza Sakova, who's a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg News. She wrote that article with our colleague Eric Schatzker. And Meb Faber. Who's Meb, Eric? Oh, Meb's a ETF legend. Uh, he's been he's been around in the business for a long time. He runs Cambria ETFs, uh, which have a couple billion in assets. Meb is uh, wrote one of the uh, a famous paper that a lot of um, uh, people and quantitative uh, people really look uh, uh, look to as one of the um, best thinkers in the ETF space. But he also has products, and one of his products is called Tail for tail risk. And that's why he was sort of included in the article and is is here today. This time on Trillions, Black Swan Investing. Denitza, Meb, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for having us. Great to be here, y'all. Okay, Denitza, can you tell us about your article? What did you learn in the process of of doing this and, and what's new? Yeah, we learned a couple of things. So from institutional to smaller investors, there seems to be a big interest in those products. Uh, When we define those products, we have to go to the basic idea of this. So the very basic pure tail risk or black swan uh, insurance is buying deep out of the money puts and protecting against the huge walls, like 30%, like something we saw 
uh, during COVID. And then we're getting a huge payoff, which depending on what you've read, depending on the hedge fund or, uh, or the ETF, we're going to see a huge return. But what we saw during the process is uh, the biggest issue with those strategies is uh, they have negative carry. So for a very long time, you may be in for big losses. This could be for a couple of years, maybe even a decade. But then eventually you're promised a big payoff that is hopefully bigger than the losses. But what we're seeing is people are trying to diversify. They're moving into different assets. Uh, they're targeting a smaller market crash. So if it's not like 30%, say, you can be hedging against 20%. And all this is um, uh, in the purpose of making it cheaper and more accessible. But then it's kind of moving away from this huge 300%, 400% or four-digit payout. Um, that is promised. But these are especially profitable and uh, popular now, uh, as in March 2020, they had some breaking news headline about how huge the returns are. So you, it kind of makes sense that this year, with so much going on, investors are choosing them as an option. So, so in almost like uh, greatly simplified terms, for a few pennies, I get an insurance policy effectively that might pay out should something really bad happen. And I find myself with a winning strategy in the event of something going completely catastrophic. Is that about right? No, not really. Okay. I mean, right, yeah, that, that, that would be a nice, <laughs> that would be be an great. ideal well, promise. It sounds great, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be great. But uh, I'll, I'll correct you on the few pennies. It's more than a few pennies. Okay. But this has long been something that institutional investors could do, right? And what's interesting in your story, what stu stood out to me was that there's now this retail ability to do it. Exactly. So, yeah. So what's happening there? Uh, so for institutional investors, it makes a lot of sense because it's like a long-term policy and then you held it for a very long time. And then when the big hit comes in and you lose on your equity part of your portfolio, here is the great tail risk insurance to protect you. Uh, but then for ETFs, uh, it's a bit different because obviously like people don't need two quarters to decide to implement it. Uh, they can use it in a lot of different ways. And there has been a lot of demand uh, for that type of protection. The biggest ETF uh, is Cambria, and it's grown significantly in the last two years, and even more so uh, this year, even though it's down over the years. So there is an interest, maybe a strong belief that this potential market crash is coming in, but there is an interest even as the price continues to fall. Yeah, and um, let me bring Meb in here because he is the maker of TAIL. There are a couple issuers and a couple products that are, people have been using this year to hedge. Uh, there's some stuff in the alternative space that's up, doing well. People sometimes will use an inverse fund. But MEB and also I think Simplify and Innovator use options, right? And, and I want to just go into that, that idea and, and just let's just break down tail. Um, sometimes when I think of these hedged ETFs, I think of, okay, you take the S&P 500, and you add in put options or the VIX. But then what happened over the past decade is a lot of times you would give up so much uh, of the upside that they didn't get a lot of love. So I guess knowing that was the sort of history of these hedged ETFs, but now we're in an era where people want some protection. Um, you know, how does tail fit into that? So um, there's really two questions that, that comes to this is, you know, does someone need tail risk? And then 
do they need it right now? And those and those are sort of two different questions. And we can talk about the latter in a minute because I think it's particularly uh, insightful. But a number of years ago, let's call it six years ago, you know, Cambria is both an issuer of ETFs. We have twelve but also a consumer, a user of ETFs. And so uh, for a lot of our allocation and strategies, uh, we want certain exposures. And despite there being tens of thousands of funds out there available to purchase, often we look around and and we just kind of say, huh, or yuck, in the case of the inverse category. So we were looking for some inverse style funds to use. And the challenge with most of the category was that it was either A, really complicated, B, really confusing, like it was hard to even read the prospectus or lastly, really expensive. You know, many of these were very expensive products that make, you know, kind of two and 20 blush. And so um, we said, can we come up with something that is more palatable? That's common sense. I could explain to, you know, my nieces or nephews or someone um, just on, on a basic level. And so we wrote a white paper as we are usually want to do. It was called worried about the market. Maybe it's time for the strategy in which we outlined the theory behind tail. And we said, okay, what does well when U.S. stock market pukes? Well, the things you would not not expect to do well don't historically. So foreign stocks don't help. Um, Real estate doesn't help. Commodities usually don't help. Gold, like crazy cousin Eddie, like shows up. You don't know who you're going to get. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes it doesn't. Can't count on it. Bonds have often helped but they've helped more in the latter half of the 20th century, not in the beginning, but usually they help, right? So, um, and then obviously there's things, active strategies like trend following, that usually does a great job, but you can't say guaranteed in our world. Almost guaranteed. The one thing that really is almost guaranteed to do well when stocks have a really terrible outcome is buying puts. Of course, what's the problem with buying puts? That was mentioned earlier, they're expensive, right? It's a big cost. And so we said, how can we come up with a strategy that puts A and B together and come up with something that's palatable? So the vast majority of the fund hangs out in 10-year government bonds. Uh, so it generates some income, a little more than it was a year or two ago. But historically, you know, that's four, five, six percent. You also get a potential capital gains when things hit the fan and bonds uh, perform okay or great. And then you buy a ladder of puts on the stock market. And that has the effect, we believe, of uh, not costing as much in the good times when stocks are going up. That's what you want to be. You want to be an owner. Remember, like the whole part of do you need tail risk is you want to remain mostly invested most of the time, but also do a good job hedging when it hits the fan. And so 2020, as mentioned earlier, is a great example because all the inverse funds did great in Q1, but then many of them ended up down on the year, like 20, 30% or something, and eventually use like 99.9% of their money. And clients hate that. They hate that bleed. So hopefully we think, and by the way, we have two, two tail risk funds, tail and fail. Fail's doing much better this year. It's on, it's on the foreign stocks, uh, but is also uh, not surprising our smallest fund. Those are amazing tickers, by the way, props on those. You said something in there that I just want to ask about, which is a ladder of puts. What, what does that mean? As most people know, puts kind of fall off a cliff, lose a lot of value, time decay in the last month or two till expiration. Uh, so we like to hang out in sort of that three to 15 month time horizon. So we're sort of consistently rolling that sort of uh, expiration and, and target maturity for these uh, options. We just want, and they're slightly out of the money. You know, we're targeting when things go 
bad. So if we wake up tomorrow, stock market's down 10, we would expect this fund to be up around 10%. Um, but the hope is if the market's up 10% or is up 10% over the next year, that this fund doesn't lose a ton of money. It's more of like an insurance premium you're paying. And so we hope it's a little more palatable in the, in the good times. We had a conversation about this and you said a lot of people use it tactically as a short-term trait. Uh, but me diving deep into tear risk, like the whole philosophy of it is holding it for a very long time and hoping, not hoping, but eventually it pays off. How do those two work together? Is tail supposed to be this long-term hedge or is it a timing the right time to buy it? I'm, I'm going to make a, a comment that is almost like sacrilege from a money manager. I'm, I'm not speaking my book here. Is if you were to ask me, most people ask me, do I need a tail risk fund or strategy? The answer is probably no. Now, most people don't have a diversified portfolio. So I'm talking if, if your foundation is U.S. stocks and bonds, global stocks and bonds, a bunch of real assets tilt towards value and momentum, and even some trend following sprinkled in. You do all those things. You have a written investing plan, low cost, low taxes, boom. Do you probably need tail risk? Probably not. However, let me give you a good example of why right now matters. Um, there was an author that wrote a great book recently about Jack Bogle. And I can't remember who the author was, <laughs> but it was a fantastic book. Um, I know, I know, to, I know. It's uh, that guy. <laughs> it talked about Bogle and, you know, he's the goat. I love him to death. Um, he built Vanguard on this buy and hold mentality. But but even, you know, Bogle's disclosed many times in talking about markets, you know, um, they go crazy sometimes and, and trying to use some common sense and thinking about valuations and expectations. And he famously talked in the late 90s about how stocks were crazy expensive and, and trimming and rebalancing or even, hey, it's not crazy to move from 60-40 to 40-60, for example. Well, right now is another one of those times. So U.S. stocks hit a 10-year CAPE ratio peak in 99, December 99 of almost 45. You know, historically, they're down around 18 to 22 low inflationary times around 22. We just hit a peak recently in this last um, up thrust of uh, 40. You know, we're down since then because the market's down. But you combine this scenario where U.S. stocks are A, expensive, and B, now in a downtrend. And historically, that's a terrible place to be. Now, the problem is for a lot of people that had this 60-40 or whatever their allocation was, U.S. stocks have romped for the last decade. And so that 60-40 may now be... 70-30, 80-20, 90-10, right? And they don't want to sell those because of capital gains or taxes or other reasons. And so a tail risk fund, for example, um, let's say you're up to 80-20. Well, you can do a bond replacement. So you could take out the bonds because this fund gives you the bonds back. Um, and then you get this overlay of inverse exposure to stocks if you want to balance it out. You could take an outright bearish view on and on. So to, to us, there's a lot of people that use it as a alt bucket or as a bond replacement. And there's some people that use this all the time insurance just as something to talk to to clients when it really hits the fan. So at least something is probably up. So there, there's all the time and there's right now. Um, but I think that's a here in 2022. That's a good example of why you might want to use it tactically. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. 
What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. How is this mo most effective? Is it sort of a buy and hold when I think things might get spicy? Or because, you know, the other thing about Black Swan events, and, and we wrote about this in the article, is sort of they're, they're well known for sharp drops rather than sort of prolonged fall offs, right? So um, if you were to ask, if you were to poll investors and say, do you have a written, invest written investment plan? There's about 5% that say yes. Okay. And so most people are flying by the seat of their pants anyway. And so this is a problem for everything. It's a problem for what happens when inflation's at 9%. What happens if gold goes to 4,000 or 400? What happens if Bitcoin goes to a million or zero? You know, people struggle with not having a plan. So this applies equally well to everything as well as uh, this tail risk strategy. So when you make an investment or a trade, and no one does this, but you should, you should write down or establish the criteria why would I sell this position? When would I sell this position? Because you know what? You can hit pause on this recording, go out and look in your garage and see all the junk in there. No one, you buy all this stuff. It's like, when am I going to get rid of it? No, you just accumulate and you get an emotional attachment, right? The endowment effect. And so you look at this tail risk position and say, okay, when am I going to let this go? Or when am I going to add to it? And a totally reasonable response would be something like, look, I'm going to sell this position. And we have half of Cambria, our, our company's balance sheet in this fund by the way, our cash account. Half is in Trinity uh, strategy, half is in tail risk. And so, but we have set up, say, look, we are going to sell this as valuations come back down to reasonable levels. Okay, so CAPE ratio, let's call it 30. Let's say we're going to sell some when it hits 28, 26, 24, 22, 20. Hopefully it doesn't go 18, 16, 12, 10, 5, right? Um, but it's happened in the past. And by the way, you mentioned inflation in the beginning. The two periods most similar to where we are, 1970s and particularly the 1940s, guess what? Valuations hit single digit levels. So uh, not without, not out of the realm of possibilities. So establish the criteria ahead of time. Someone else could say, you know what? I'm a trend guy, trend gal. I'm going to invest and have full exposure to stocks and an uptrend. But when it rolls over into a downtrend, I'm going to buy tail risk fund or something similar, but I'm going to exit when it goes back up because most people don't have that criteria. How many people have you guys talked to, friends, family, sold in 2009, can't take it anymore, March of 2009, but the problem is they never got back in, right? Like there, there's no, the, uh, to, to Nick's book, like just keep buying, like they, you need to have the criteria ahead of time. Otherwise, guess what? We're all emotional and that that usually doesn't work out. Um, okay, so this this fund has the bond exposure. So I, I see, so year to date, um, I think it's down 4.8, but that's obviously better than stocks and better than bonds. 
Um, but that bond exposure, the bonds went down. Now you said at the beginning, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but typically bonds do provide a hedge. They they aren't this year because the Fed is is obviously raising rates right in their face. What are your thoughts on that? Like you make this product and is it frustrating when the bonds aren't like giving you a little more uh, of a hedge because the puts are obviously working. Um, and have you ever thought about just taking the bond side out or moving out of bonds or, or something like that, given the new, you know, the, 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 the bond issue is that the Fed is, again, purposely decreasing their value because they're raising rates. We have 12 funds, so something is always disappointing me. Like it's, ha- it's like having a bunch of children. It's like one of you is always going to be a disappointment. Um, but the good news is something is usually doing well, too. So um, a couple things. So uh, it's funny what's going on in the cycle, because back when bond yields were bumping down near zero in the U.S., negative in the rest of the world, the question wasn't, Meb, why aren't why are you using 10-year bonds? The question was, why aren't you using 30-year bonds and zero coupon bonds? Because those would do much better when interest rates are going down. And of course, now people say, um, why aren't you using T-bills? Or uh, if gold was doing better, people would probably say, why didn't you include gold in this allocation? And so the challenge with designing a product is there's limitless permutations of a way to build it. And if you had said, and if you look at the fail ETF, it actually has a diversified bond exposure, including foreign bonds, emerging market bonds, tips, uh, because it's hedging a different sort of risk. And it's up on the year, but it's hedging foreign stocks with a different bond component. But if you say, Meb, does this sound reasonable? Quarter each in tips, 10-year, T-bills, and gold. That's to- that sounds totally reasonable. Meb, would you, should you do a, a, a 2x exposure to, and by the way, one additional feature of this fund is that when it rebalances, it's buying 1% of AUM and premium per month. So that has the feature that when VIX is up at 60 or something, it's not loading up on, on puts because you don't want to buy it after the tail events happen. But when VIX is down at 8 or 12 or 15, as it's been over the past few years, you're loading up on a lot more. So as a natural mean reversion. But, but on the collateral component, and this applies actually to a lot of things. It applies to managed futures. It applies to any strategy using uh, derivatives for exposure. Um, I, I think for me at the end of the day, it's like, what is the balance? What do you want to invest in? And for us, like I said, we're I personally invest a lot in this fund. Our firm invests what do I think the best exposure is? If I could magically come up with a, and I said this on Twitter the other day, I said, who's got the cojones to be buying zero coupon bonds here? They're down 50%. We're reaching near all-time levels on bond drawdowns right now. Now, the optis, optimist in me would say, well, the good news is you now have some income in this fund because bonds are a much higher yield. They've reset. So when we have the crisis this fall, I hope not. I just want six months of quiet, by the way. Just nice peace and quiet markets. Uh, but if you have a crisis, bond. The, the good news is the bond yields are much higher, so they have the room for the capital gains. So um, it's a question that I think you could design it 10 different ways, and I'd probably be okay with. And it, it, this is where we sort of settled on as a finale. But you guys want to give me $100 million, we'll talk. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do a gold, var- gold Bitcoin variant for you. <laughs> well, we'll see on that, but I, I kind of want to go back to that question. Like, it's it, we've we've seen a bear market. We've seen so many 
events that people say this could be a terrorist event, this could be, you know, inflation, the, the recession worries. And yet, obviously, it's uh, over outperforming the S&P, but the performance is still negative. And there are, there are some strategies, not to name names, but like CTAs, for example, that are still doing quite well. There are a lot of other defensive strategies that are doing quite well. Do you think that this performance is making the case for tail, tail risk insurance weaker? Because this is not much 2020. We're not seeing any big gains. Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to make two comments. One is um, I think our firm has the highest percentage of ETFs that are up on the year of anyone. So there's a handful of funds that are doing well. Um, but the good news about an ETF is you can always short it too. And I love to say this to like the people who come, you know, or talk to me on Twitter or something. And I say, well, the good news is if you don't like this fund, free alpha, baby, go short it. And then you get the inverse exposure. You get instead of buying puts, you get selling options and then you get inverse bonds, too. And so it's a tradable. Um, but but t- to be serious for a second, you know, um, the vast majority of what people consider to be tail risk or even disappointments in markets are neither. Um, it's it's. I would I would say it's like not having a full appreciation of the arc of history, and so looking at what's happened in the past. Because normal market returns are extreme. You know, almost never does the stock market return ten percent a year. It's up twenty, flat, down fifteen, up four, up fifty. You know, it's all over the place, and this applies to days, months, years as well. Um, but it also applies to correlations. You know, there's so many people that assume things like stock bond correlation and bonds will always do well when stocks don't. And that's not the case. It's particularly not the case when bond yields were at zero. Right. And so I think this all comes down to an expectations and alignment. The beginning of last year, you at you poll investors, what do they expect stocks to do? And most of them was 15 to 17 percent. And that has no foundation in reality whatsoever. So. I don't expect bonds to always help. In fact, as you see this year, they somewhat uh, they somewhat have hurt. Now, do you want to know the saddest thing? I'm going to tell you the saddest thing. We have a, a suite of tail risk funds, a few that are not filed, and now one that probably will never get filed. But the third in the series was bail, which was bond tail risk, which was going to be buying a ton of puts on the 30-year bond. And so as interest rates have screamed up, this fund would probably be like a $10 billion fund at this point. So I'm so sad. But Bale never made it to light. Um, but uh, talk about doing well in this environment. That would have been the king. Um, so uh, the long-winded answer to your question, I, you know, I, it fits my expectations. Like this is fully within the realm. Um, would I wish it would be up 30% this year? Sure. But um, I think... Uh, Sadly, Morningstar has done away with the ratings in this category, but um, tail, I'm not, you guys are going to have to check me on this. It used to be the cheapest fund in the entire category. I think it's still in the top two or three. Um, But, and this is like not a badge of honor because um, it, it for a long time was one of the very best performers, but that is simply because it loses less. <laughs> it's not because it particularly makes any money. It's because it loses less than all the, uh, all the other funds. 
Um, and at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned inverse CTFs, and you didn't speak very fondly of them, but I, I, I want to get them back in the conversation. How do you think um, this product is better than two times leverage bet against, I don't know, the S&P, yeah. bond? Why, why, why this product is so much better? We, we have, uh, I think, currently a little over 125,000 investors. And you chat with investors of any stripe and almost always, you know what they hate is they hate positions that consistently lose money and, and tail is in that category, which is a good thing, right? For most insurance vehicles, your house didn't burn down. Are you, are you complaining about the insurance on your house? No, but they don't like to see the red every month. Now, the question becomes is, is that red half a percent or is it? five percent and the problem with a lot of the inverse funds you get these volatility gremlins particularly when they're leveraged and you look pull up an equity curve and after a few years they're down 90 99 and that's really hard to keep re-upping you talk to a client say hey good news is portfolio is doing all right but we're going to double down and martingale and buy more of this losing fund i think i think that's really hard from a behavioral standpoint and again going back to the the completing the circle on this entire discussion. I don't think most investors need tail risk, but one of the biggest benefits is the behavioral side. You know, most advisors that have been around long enough, they look at a client's portfolio and say, look, I'm not optimizing on that sharp ratio to the second decimal point. I'm not optimizing on this perfect fit. I just want them to survive and not do something really dumb. Like I want to get them to the finish line. So if there's this fund that may not be optimal, but helps them get there and survive sort of the path, um, perhaps it's worth an allocation. And so, you know, I, I think you mentioned CTAs, by the way, one of my favorites. We have a higher allocation to trend than I think any investor that I know of professional in this country, which our default is 50%. Um, so that is also having a great year, but was been a period of fallow for a very long time before this. You talk about struggling through tail risk. My goodness, trying to be a trend follower, I think is even harder. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I want to shift to one of your other products. It's really the, the fun that I know you for. And I, I want you to go into this concept because I, I like it. Um, it just makes sense. Like it's one of those things you read about and you're like, yeah, I, I get it. Um, 
And this is actually your best inflowing fund this year, even more than tail, which is SYLD, which is sort of the, it's your flagship fund, right? Your shareholder yield. I mean, if you had a flagship, this would be it, I'm guessing. It just explained what shareholder yield is. And I do notice this thing is down 7.6%, which is way better than the market. And what's what's going on sure. in there that's help that's helping it? Sure. So if you were to try and find something that's diametrically opposed to tail risk, uh, it's long U.S. stocks. And if you go to first principles, which is sort of the phrase of 2022, and say, hey, I want to build an investment portfolio, what are the criteria I should use? Uh, how about we want to invest in CEOs that treat the shareholders fairly and with respect. They're not paying themselves some egregious you know, compensation and, and options. Um, they're returning cash to shareholders. They, uh, the stock trades at a discount to intrinsic value. They're not um, paying out these payments through massive leverage and taking on a ton of debt. All these metrics, it's, it's basically like a, a Berkshire Buffett 101 style strategy. And we wrote a book on this topic. It's free to download online called Shareholder Yield. And the theory goes back 100 years. You know, you can, you can simulate this concept, which is at its core, combining the philosophy of dividends and net stock buybacks. So really starting the 80s, but amping up and increasing the 90s, companies started buying back a lot more stock. In any given year over the past 20, companies actually buy back more stock than they pay out in dividends. Now, this is a rabbit hole of disinformation, and investors really struggle with this topic. Um, but buybacks at their core, when a stock's trading in intrinsic value, are the exact same thing as dividends. And people lose their mind about this. Their brains start to misfire. I don't know why. Um, and I think buybacks just simply have bad marketing. You could call them cash or tax-efficient dividends, and people may change their their mind about that. So looking holistically, because you have companies that say, we're not going to pay any dividends, but we're going to do an 8% per year buyback program. Now, it's important to use net buybacks because uh, a lot of companies do share issuance. We mentioned options for executives. Uh, so you have to be careful on the total shares outstanding. Um, some companies will do no dividends, 8% buybacks. Some Companies will do 5% dividends, no buybacks. Companies like Apple, which is a great case study, because we owned Apple from this ETF's launch in the year 2013 all the way to the beginning of 2022. You know, what is that? Eight plus years owning this company. Um, but they're a great case study because they do both. And so usually if you would say have a 3% dividend yield, 3% buyback yield, it may not show up on either screen. So doing buybacks alone is just as crazy as just doing dividends, two sides of the same coin. So what you're looking for is is high payout. And then, of course, you want this, the stocks to be cheap. Buffett says there's no better use of cash when a stock is trading below intrinsic value than buying back their own shares. And you don't want them to be doing it with a ton of debt. So SYLD is the U.S. version of that. We actually have a foreign and emerging, FYLD and EYLD. There's a slight cultural difference between the U.S. and abroad based on how they approach buybacks. It's changing. Um, traditionally, foreign markets are more dividend-focused, but you can see this in Japan and other countries as well. That's starting to move as well. But this philosophy, I think, is one that if you find me any dividend strategy modeling historically, it beats all of them, whether it's high yield or whether it's dividend growth, uh, because of, I think, uh, uh, this focus on treating shareholders fairly. 
this makes a lot of sense to me. I think anybody listening probably is like, yeah, you know, this is pretty logical. Um, the performance, I, I didn't realize this. I, I just pulled this up and I was like, my guess is it's probably lagging the S&P since inception in 2013. So it's almost 10 years because, well, you go for companies that have a lower PE and that trade was really rough for a decade. Yes, it's working now, but I thought it, but it's still outperforming. It looks like this recent, the, the, the recent year or and a half has elevated it past the S&P for lifetime. Not a lot, only six percentage points, but um, that's not easy to do. Almost nothing beats the S&P. So um, 2020, when growth was crazy, this thing got burned a little bit, but then when it went out of vogue, you made up for it. Let me, um, let me give you a fun, listeners, a fun homework project. Uh, you can go and type any symbol into your Bloomberg terminal, into Morningstar for a lot of the ETFs out there and get an x-ray of the valuation metrics of these underlying funds. And often investors are shocked and surprised when they type in uh, a big dividend ETF or other funds, um, SPY for an example, and how expensive the underlying metrics of their holdings are and have been. They're less expensive now, but, <laughs> but beginning year, even more expensive. And part of that is what you're talking about. And this really peaked the craziness in February, March of, of uh, last year. But value has struggled. And you've seen this outperformance of value. The, the inflection, I think, really started in 2020, but, but gained force over the past year. But it hasn't even begun to have its moment yet. If you look at most, if you've talked to most of the quants, most of the people in my world, and you look at a lot of the value spreads, both within the U.S., but also international, uh, a lot of foreign developed and particularly emerging markets, you know, some of these funds out there on just the dividend yield alone are yielding north of six, 7%. Uh, the valuations are often screaming cheap spread versus the expensive stuff. So despite the performance of value as a strategy, I think it's got its best days ahead of it. And you remember, you know, back in 2000, 2003, small cap value outperformed the S&P by 150 percentage points over three years, just absolutely monster outperformance. And so uh, you haven't got me started on broad market valuations because we need another hour for that, but that's my <laughs> least popular probably topic is. So let's say I'm a person and I'm looking through here and I'm like, I get it, the, the numbers are good, the yield's pretty good, the returns, obviously it's beating the S&P lifetime. But then I look at some of the stocks and I'm like, Dillard's, um, you know, uh, looks like there's some oil companies in here. Um, and then you've got like Whirlpool, um, uh, Macy's. You, you could see someone going, ah, you know, are these really good stocks? I, I would I would frame it even worse. I would say they're often <laughs> nausea inducing. You know, um, <laughs> that's the beauty of being a quant is you pick up that nausea premium by saying, uh, I, I don't even know what I am looking at the names. Uh, and then I never would buy these. Are you crazy on my own? But, um, but it's interesting. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of materials and energy, which in a higher inflationary world uh, is pretty beneficial. But, it, but it's curious because if you actually look at the foreign, and, and tech is a small allocation in this fund, uh, but if you look at the foreign and particularly emerging market versions of this, you end up with a differ, different sectoral composition now, materials and energy are still high because they've. We see the headlines; they're they're printing money in this environment. 
But you see tech being a big allocation in emerging markets, which it's not in the U.S. So it's curious to see how this changes over time. They're cap agnostic, so they could be big cap, they could be small cap. Um, and, and the sector is, is allowed to sort of wax and wane. But it's always curious to me because, I mean, think back two years ago, no one in the world wanted energy. Energy as a sector went from a peak of 30% in the S&P 500 to a bottom, I think, of two at the bottom. And now it's up a little bit, but still nowhere near historical averages. And you look at tech over time has is oscillated as well. So what becomes in favor, what seems uh, totally nausea inducing, but the nausea inducing, the good news is also, it's that for a reason. It's super cheap and generating lots and lots and, and bags of cash flow. So uh yeah um just so to do me a favor go shopping at dealers this weekend and buy some pleated khakis and you'll help our uh your help our share price pleated for oh, sure they're, i okay. think they're coming back by the way they're pleated. Uh, they're due they're they've been back. out for 20 years they right? are not coming back i think um, so somehow we've managed to go from black swan investing to pleated khakis um but but <laughs> Meb, i i want to ask um and fascinating stuff all in between but but Meb, i want to ask is there anything else that investors aren't talking enough of about right now that that you think they should be thinking about more i have a thread on twitter that's called something like uh what do i believe that the vast majority of my professional peers so meaning 75 percent, don't believe and that's it that's it 17 items and counting um this again goes back to the author we were talking about earlier you know investors in general don't um don't focus on fees and expenses enough so all 12 of our funds are cheaper than the category average, and a couple are cheapest in the entire category. That's usually because Vanguard's not in the category, by the way, but um, but but still a nice badge of honor. I think fees and expenses really matter. But, but, but what do investors, the big mistakes they're making right now, almost always U.S. investors put way too much in their home market, so U.S. stocks and bonds. And that's fine normally, and it's fine over long time horizons, 20 years plus. It's not fine right now, and it's not fine right now. You're seeing this is one of the worst starts ever for 60-40. And we did a poll on Twitter which said at the time 60-40 was down 13% or something. I said, what do you think the biggest drawdown in 60-40 was historically? And most people assumed it was like 15-20%. No, it's over 50, right? And so investors really struggle with this concept of how bad can it get? And so what do you do? Again, they're not diversified enough. They don't own enough foreign stocks. They don't own enough emerging market stocks. Almost no one, with the except, ex exception of Canadians and Australians, own any natural resources, so commodity, uh, real assets like real estate, REITs, TIPS. That should be a big percentage of the portfolio. Uh, and then as you go down this sort of investing pyramid of what matters, you know, we also think valuations always matter. Now, the good news is most of the rest of the world is, is totally reasonable to cheap to screaming cheap. It's just not the U.S. And lastly, we love trend following, but that's the, that's the topic for a whole nother show. Okay, last question. Favorite ETF ticker other than your own? You know, I, uh, I actually tweeted this the other day. I have a fondness for certain tickers that have hit the ticker graveyard. And um, there was a couple where I said, well, I wish these still existed. Should I just relaunch them with the exact same ticker? Is that bad form? And I was <laughs> my buddy Jan over at Van Eck, they closed the coal ETF. 
And I said, KOL. And I was like, should we just relaunch this as Cambria Coal now? Is there, is it, that's going to email Jan and be like, yo, man, what are you doing? Because there, here's what's missed. You know, the coal, we talked about this earlier with tail, but an ETF, regardless of the long side ownership, it gives you the opportunity to X that out. Like if you got a portfolio and you want to get rid of the coal companies, you can short it. There's a lot of been a lot of discussion in Cliff and others about ESG and thinking about how to net out, uh, you know, long versus short. And so KOL was up there. Um, Barn would be another one. I think that was Global oh, X. That was a great yeah, ticker. That the food ETF. also in the graveyard. Barn. <laughs> That's deep. Coal, by the way, coal is one of those classic stories of, of where the ETF tries to hang around for, it hangs around for eight, nine years and it just throws in the towel like six months before its just moment boom. arrives. I, yeah, it's, you need to see it. Yeah. All right, Denitza, Meb, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. It was a blast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Baltrinas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Stacey Wong. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.